Well, I want to begin by thanking uh, Mark Schroeder for preaching the past uh, two weeks about a great topic, in fact, the greatest of topics, this do in my remembrance. Not at all bad for a Lutheran. I was able to listen to the sermons on podcasts and was deeply encouraged. Isn't that what you were? Encouraged? Encouraged to remember the work of Christ and encouraged to know that He remembers us through the work of His Son. If you are not here to listen to those messages, I commend them to you. You can go to iTunes and, and type in Alliance Bible Fellowship Messages in the search engine and it will bring up our podcasts. Um, listen to those. You will be encouraged I promise. I also want to uh, congratulate David Ellington, who um, had his oral examination on Monday with that LOCC, the Licensing, Ordination, and Consecration Council of our district. He passed. That's right. An ordination ceremony is scheduled here at our church for the beginning of November. We'll keep you posted about the details of that so that you can come and help him um, celebrate as he is officially ordained. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, to pass the uh, ordination examination requires tons of study and the ability to defend the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Things like the Trinity, the, the person and work of Christ, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the church, and, and her ordinances, things like that. And I also suggested that knowing these things and being able to defend them biblically ought to be the desire of every Christian, not just pastors. See, I think one of the reasons that the American church is so anemic, it's so weak, is because we don't know what we believe and we don't know why we believe it. And this has been a problem since actually the beginning of the church. In many of his letters, Paul is writing to either churches or pastors correcting false teaching, and that false teaching has led to false practices. For example, when he wrote uh, to the churches in Galatia, he was dealing with those Judaizers, those Jewish teachers who were running around saying, hey, belief in Jesus is good, but you've also got to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And when we studied that book, we found that if you add anything to the gospel, you, you destroy it. In fact, if Paul said, if anyone comes preaching um, any other message except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, let Him be accursed. Let Him be damned. He wrote the church in Thessalonica, which was being told that the coming of Christ and the resurrection was already past. <laughs> what? Uh, Paul wrote to correct that false teaching. He said, uh, let no man in any way deceive you. Don't you remember I was telling these things when I was with you? He wrote the church in Corinth. Take us the rest of the morning just to list all of their problems. Um, they were built on faulty beliefs. They were divided behind certain leaders. They were tolerating sin in the church. They were, they were suing each other, Christians suing Christians. They were confused about marriage and divorce. They were confused about the gifts of the Spirit. So Paul writes to correct them about those things, among other things. <laughs> seems, like, seems like things never change. 
I mean, we're still confused about division in the church. I don't get along, just run down the street and start another one. We're still tolerating sin in the church. Very few churches practice church discipline anymore. We're still suing each other. We're still confused about marriage and divorce. Statistics between Christians and non-Christians is little difference. And we're still fighting over the gifts of the Spirit. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians and see if it doesn't fix a lot of what you, or at least the church, thinks. Well, now we are in the book of Colossians. And surprise, a group of false teachers had shown up in town, not really sure what to call these guys. We don't even really fully understand their teaching. And Paul's going to expose them, their teaching, in chapter 2. But, but for now, we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 1. You may remember he's identified himself and addressed his readers um, uh, in his salutation. He thanked God for them, having heard about their um, faith in Christ and their love for all of the saints. And he's, and he's prayed for them specifically. Now listen to this. Specifically that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they would walk worthy of the Lord. Stop right there. He prayed for them that they would be filled with knowledge so that they would walk in a worthy manner. Quite regularly today, you will hear people downplay, even speak negatively of theology and doctrine. You know, all you need is love, all that. Don't confuse me with doctrine. That Paul prays for knowledge for this young church because he understands that in order to walk rightly, it must be built on the solid foundation of biblical truth. What we believe informs our walk. So having told them, he prays for them. Paul launches into what has been called an early hymn in the Christian church. Don't know whether he wrote it, borrowed it, modified it, but his purpose was to launch a preemptive strike against these false teachers. Whatever they were teaching had to do with an attack on the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the necessity of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what most false religions, even today, and cults, they've always done, attack Jesus. So, it becomes necessary that we understand who Jesus is and what he did. We can have no confusion about that. We need to be so familiar with it that we can spot heresy a mile away. Paul's hymn then goes like this. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him for Him. It's before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness dwell in Him. And, and through Him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, or more literally to Him, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on the earth or things in the heavens. 
What an unbelievable hymn. And I told you that a few, I told you a few weeks ago that an early hymn was not typically what we think of today. I mean, you know, four verses followed by a chorus where we normally skip that third verse. Rather, uh, an early, early hymns had two important characteristics. They were stylistic and linguistic characteristics. Stylistically, an early hymn had a certain rhythmic uh, sound to it, a correspondence between words and phrases that were carefully chosen and carefully placed. There was uh, some, some rudimentary meter and there was a use of certain rhetorical devices. The second linguistic criteria was an unusual vocabulary, and, and it was typically filled with all kinds of theological terms. So in that respect, we found, for example, the Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, and Colossians 1, 15 to 20 are two excellent early hymns. We should know them. Now, remember, a couple of weeks ago, I suggested someone ought to contact Lecrae, a Christian rapper, to write a rap about Colossians 1, because Christian rap music is really pretty close to both the style and the linguistics of those early hymns and creeds. Well, wouldn't you know it, someone let me know that there already was such a rap. It's in a cooperative work by several Christian artists, rap artists. The work is called 13 Letters. On, on the album, the artists take Paul's 13 letters and put them to rap. So, I'm going to take a huge risk and do something I have never done. No, I'm not going to rap, <laughs> but I'm going to play a rap song. Now, I know this is not necessarily our corporate style, and you may not like the style, but I want to remind you it is just a style. It's a good opportunity to remind us that style itself is amoral. That is, certain musical styles and rhythms and even instruments have nothing to do with right or wrong. They're just a matter of personal preference. And at Alliance... We try to blend styles to meet certain musical tastes and expectations. And so, so while rap may not be your thing, it is, for, it is for others. And this particular rap called Let No Man by Jason, his name was Jason, but he changed it to J-S-O-N, Jason, I like that, <laughs> contains the truth of Colossians in early hymn style. So again, since I challenged that this song be written and found out that it already was, I will, at great risk, but you know over the last couple of weeks I updated my resume, um, I will play the song with the words on the screen, trust me, you'll need them. You can sing along if you like.
brethren in Christ. A pack has brought me a concern. My hopes are shedding some light. Now it's tight to see your faith, but I have an art with you, Colossians. The problem is your faith is being wavered by these Gnostics. Allowing them to teach you matters evil at best. And since our bodies are matter, God can be in the flesh. They're denying the fact that Christ was fully God and fully man. I fully stand saying who teaches this should be fully damned. I also understand you're falling in legalism. Believing to be forgiven, you're in need of circumcision. But I want you to grow in wisdom and truth. Having knowledge of his will, bearing spiritual fruit. But still in all, I thank God for the light he's giving y'all. I haven't ceased praying for you daily while in these prison walls. But these are some of the reasons I chose to write this text. So take heed as you read and believe through Christ alone, you're blessed. Christ is son of man, a lamb, but still God. Still God. And no man persuades you different than this. become visible. This son of God, firstborn of us all, and it's not literal. He's chronologically first, the best way to keep this biblical. So what I'm saying is he was here before all beings, and Christ was not created, but he has created all things. Provided all means needed to save men were stainless. Alone through him were holy and blameless. He's the head of the church with just the body that's formed. He's the full essence of God, man, in bodily form. I want you to see that Christ even rules in this seniority. Angels give him the glory, Creation sees his authority. He has prevailed over the law and the loss. And yes, he has paid your ransom, his nail to the cross. I want you to know I write this so no man can persuade you. But you'll stand firm in the son who was crushed to save. Christ is son of man, a lamb, but still God. Still God. And no man persuades you different than this. That's only the first two verses. There are more to come. Based on your reception, I may play later as we get to chapter three in a couple of years. Yes, um, I have downloaded the album to my iPod. I am not a rap guy, but I plan, frankly, to learn these songs because they give an unbelievable overview of Paul's letters. How many of you, be honest, were tapping your feet? Come on. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, now. now, remember, Paul is starting to battle the teachings of these false teachers who were in some way diminishing the supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity of Christ. So in this great rap, in this great hymn, he exalts Christ to the highest degree. And you could see it jump off the screen, couldn't you? He exalts him to the highest degree by showing this, Christ's supremacy over creation. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And then Christ's supremacy over the church we're going to look at this morning. Again, I, I want to encourage you to know this doctrinal truth. This is part of that knowledge of God which is required to walk in a worthy manner. And, and let me give you the outline of that, of that second point there. 
We're going to see that Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the beginning. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Christ is supreme. Christ is full deity. We're going to see that in verse 19. You need to know that verse. And Christ is the reconciler. And look, now look at that list. Now when you add that to the list from the first verse of the hymn in verses 15 to 18... It said Christ is the image of God. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the agent of creation. He's the sustainer of creation. He, in fact, he is the end of creation. You come away from this hymn understanding that Jesus is everything right. That's it. Another way to look at these two verses of this hymn is that Paul shows that Christ is supreme over creation. And now, this morning, he is supreme over the new creation called the church. Why don't you look at each one of these with me, starting with Christ is head or the head of the body, the church. That's verse 18. Now, New American Standard Bible, which is one I use, has it, he is also head of the body. I'm not sure why. That's a bad translation. Because there, there is a definite article before the word head, meaning he is the head of the body, the church. This is meant to be an absolute identification. Listen, there's only one head. There is no other, not a pope and not a pastor. Now, Paul has used this idea of the church being the body of Christ in some of his earlier Letters. Now, we've been studying Paul's letters in the order that he wrote them, and we're finding some things, some developing thought. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is addressing that problem of the spiritual gifts, elevating certain gifts above others. That sounds a bit familiar. He talks about the human physical body and how important each member of the physical body, you know, the eyes and the ears and the feet, each play a very important Part. So also in the church, he says, no matter what your gifting is, no matter what your spiritual gift is, we all play a very important part. And then he writes these words in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So members of each local church are members of the body of Christ. He said that. Later, he wrote to the Romans. In, in, in Romans chapter 12, he said basically the same thing. For just as we have many members in one body, that's our physical body, and then all the members do not have the same function, we know that, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So this idea of us being members of the body of Christ in a local church was not, was not new to Paul. But... What is a bit different in this letter and Ephesians, which he wrote about the same time, um, is this idea of Christ being the head of the body, and the body not just being a local expression, but the universal body of Christ made up of all believers at all time in all place. So Paul develops that metaphor. Now, that, this development has caused some to say, hey, see, Paul didn't write this letter. That's ridiculous. Again, as we've studied the letters in the order that he wrote them, he talked about us being the body. Now he talks about Jesus being the head of the body. It's a natural progression. Here's what I want you to get. Jesus, as supreme over the church, is the head of the body. I want you to understand that Jesus is the head 
of this body that we call alliance. That word head carries with it the idea of authority, power, control, and leadership. That means is Jesus is in charge. He's the supreme authority over, he is the sovereign over his church. He told his disciples, first time he ever used the word church in the Gospels, he said, I will build my church. I want to be very clear about it. This is not my church. It's not your church either. This is his church. And once in a while, people will be asking me about Alliance Bible Fellowship, or they, want, they ask me some question, and they won't say, tell me something about your church. And that just always, ah, that just always gets me. Not my church. That's where some of the problem comes in. That's why there's divisions in the church. We start following certain men thinking, is this, is their, it's not their church. Jesus is supreme over his church. And if we would follow the head, there would be a lot less division. He is the chief shepherd. That word shepherd means pastor. He's the chief pastor. Hmm, sounds to me like Jesus is the senior pastor of his church. You got it. He is the head and authority from which, from whom we get life and authority, ultimate supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity. Next, Jesus is also the beginning. By that, Paul is speaking of Christ's supremacy in that, as the beginning, he precedes all things. We, we saw that last time. He had to precede in order to create all things. We remember the words of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. That's what Paul means. God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Well, might be familiar with the words of God in Revelation chapter 1, sitting on his throne, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God himself says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, his way of saying, I am the beginning and the end, first and the last. It, roll the turn a few pages over, God is still sitting on his throne in Revelation chapter 21. He says basically those same words again. Oh, but now we get to Revelation chapter 22. And Jesus, last chapter of the Bible, and this time Jesus is speaking and he says this, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I, Jesus, am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Ah, make no mistake about it. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is claiming deity for himself. So when Paul says he is the beginning, he means something really important. He's before all things. He's the beginning of all things. He created all things. Here it could mean I even am the beginning of the church. I created it. I bought it with my blood. I am its supreme ruler and head. I'm the beginning. Next, we see that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Paul just piles phrase upon phrase to overwhelm us. I want you to walk away overwhelmed with who Jesus is today. 
Remember the, 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 the definition of the word firstborn from a couple of weeks ago in verse 15 where Paul said he is the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that Jesus was the first one born chronologically. It does not mean that there was a time when Jesus was not, then he was created, and then he created everything else. It's not what it means. We looked at some Old Testament verses, won't we? Recount those this morning. They saw that the word firstborn means first in rank. He is supreme over creation because as the first in rank, as the firstborn, he brought creation forth. And now we see as the firstborn of resurrection, he brought, by doing that, he brought forth the new creation. You see, between that first creation and the new creation came this thing called the fall. The need of recreation through the work of Christ. Now, I want you to think about that in just a moment. Christ did something as the agent of creation and brought about creation. And Christ did something after the fall to bring about the new creation. It's called the church. He is the firstborn. He is the most important one raised from the dead because up to this point, his resurrection was unique. There, there, there were no others who had been raised from the dead like Jesus. Lazarus, for example, had been raised just a few days before that, but Lazarus died again. Don't know if you noticed, Lazarus is not still running around today. He died again. Jesus was raised never to die again. And his resurrection proves him to be the Son of God with power, Romans 1 says. And because he has been raised never to die again, he becomes the first fruit, 1 Corinthians 15 says, of resurrection. There will be many others to come, namely those who believe in Jesus, who he is and what he did. All that means that he is the supreme one raised from the dead. The supreme one assuring our future resurrections. His resurrection uh, was at the very center of early Christian proclamation. If you want to present the gospel of Jesus Christ rightly, it must include his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Without his death, without his burial that proved he was dead, without his resurrection, there would be no gospel, there would be no church, there would be no hope. It's essential. Firstborn. Next, still in verse 18, just to make sure that we understand the importance of Jesus being the head of the church, understand that we understand the importance of his being the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, Paul makes it clear, I want you to understand something. He's done all this so that he himself, notice the emphatic language, just what it says, he himself, nobody else, he himself will come to have first place in everything. This is the goal of all history. That the, the, the triune God through the work of the Son would come to have first place in everything. Remember the words of Ephesians 1, that other, another um, uh, prison epistle 
The purpose of everything is so that everything will ultimately be summed up in Christ. Then we go to Philippians chapter 2, another prison epistle, and we read in that great hymn, God highly exalted Jesus and, he, and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what this is about. The point of all this is Christ will ultimately be exalted to the highest degree. Now, if you're reading that, if you're reading with some focus, that appears to be just a little bit confusing. I mean, what does it mean that he will come to have first place in everything? It does not mean that he wasn't first before creation, nor that he was not during his incarnation, and nor that he is not now, after his ascension, seated at the right hand of God the Father, that he is somehow, does not mean that he is somehow waiting, waiting, I'm just waiting to be supremely exalted. He is. But there's coming a time when all of creation will acknowledge his supremacy. All of creation will acknowledge that he is indeed Lord, that he is first place. We're going to come back to that. That will come. Now, Paul's not done, neither we. He says in verse 19, for, meaning everything, given what I've just written about Jesus, that he's going to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that is Jesus. It's a very difficult verse to translate. In fact, notice that the word Father on the screen is in the italics. If you've got a Bible, it's got italics like that. Whenever that, it's in italics, it means it's not in the Greek, or not in the Hebrew, it's not in the original language. The word Father's not there. In fact, if you, have a, if you carry the New American Standard Bible that I carry, you might have a footnote um, that has it this way, for all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. That is a, a frankly better and more literal translation. In fact, consider these translations, these popular three popular translations that probably comprise most of the Bibles that are sitting in this room. And they asked for it was the Father's, italics, good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. For God, not there, in the NIV, God's not there. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Uh, ESV, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God, not there, was pleased to dwell. So, which, which one of these is it? The challenges before us are, are, are twofold. First, what is the subject of the sentence? That is, is God the implied subject, because not there, or is fullness the subject? And secondly, if it is fullness, what is this fullness that is dwelling in Jesus? Now again, now follow with me, stay with me here. The word God or Father, not in the sentence, but something was pleased to dwell, and, and that implies a subject. But what was pleased to dwell? Without going into all of the syntax and, and all the rationale, those words was pleased, or often speak of God's pleasure. Therefore, 
Most of our translations say it pleased God for fullness, all the fullness to dwell in Christ. So I'm all right with God. I'm all right with, it's good I'm all right with God, isn't it? I'm a pastor. Um, I'm all right with God or Father being in, the, in, in your translation. But what is this fullness? It was pleased to dwell in Christ. And it leads to the second question. What is fullness? We're now, we, don't have to, we don't have to wonder. Chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, For in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So fullness speaks of deity, full deity. So we take all of that, put that all together to mean this. The fullness of God's deity was pleased to dwell in the body of Jesus. Why is all that important? Why I spend all that time on that? Well, first of all, Colossians chapter 1 ought to be the verse you go, verse 19 ought to be the verse you go to to say, the Bible says Jesus is God, right there. Second thing you need to know is that it seems that that word fullness, pleroma, I think, was a word that the false teachers were using. And this is what they were saying. These false teachers show up and they say, if you want to experience God in all his fullness, you need to follow our teaching. That sounds familiar. Lots of people running around today saying, if you want to experience all of God, have I got the secret for you? Paul says, no. All the fullness of God exists in Jesus. If you want to experience the fullness of God, you're going to find it in one place, and that's in Jesus. By the way, notice Paul's redundant redundancy here, his redundant statement that he uses for en- emphasis. Follow what he says in both this verse and chapter 2, verse 9. All the fullness dwells in him. All and fullness seem to me to be a bit redundant. It's called a tautology, a, liter- a-, a-, a linguistic redundancy. If it's fullness, it's all. And if it's all, it's fullness. But just to make sure that we understand it, he says, all the fullness. There's not an ounce of deity that exists outside of Jesus. All of it was pleased to dwell in him. Fullness of God's deity. Now you understand the translations. Fullness of God's deity was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Very important point. Jesus can take first place in everything, for in him the fullness of deity exists in bodily form. That's why he can be first. Make no mistake about it, one of the clearest declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1 said, because all of God's deity dwells in him. It's incredible, incredible. Brings us to our last point, another challenging, very challenging but encouraging truth. Verse 20, God, we'll take that assumed subject, was pleased to reconcile all things through the divine Son to Him. That's literal, not Himself, it's to Him, namely Jesus. God was pleased to reconcile all things to Jesus, having made, who made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We got we to look at that. 
I'm going to break that down. The language is quite challenging. Through the work of the divine Son on the cross, through the shedding of His blood, all things have been reconciled to God or to Christ in Christ. What does that mean? I mean, you got to understand that the tense of the verbs is such that all things right now have been reconciled, and there is right now peace. What? In what way have all things been reconciled? In what way has peace already been achieved? And what is this all things that Paul's talking about? Well, let's take that in reverse order. In the context, all things has been referring to does it come as a surprise? All things. Material and immaterial, physical and spiritual. And just to make sure that we're thinking, still staying on those along those lines, it gets to the end of the verse and says, listen, it doesn't matter whether it's on uh, things on earth or things in heaven. All things will be, have been reconciled. So, in what way have all things been reconciled? That, that's challenging. In fact, that sounds a little bit like universalism. And some have gone to this verse to teach just that, that there will come a day, listen carefully, that there will come a day when all people and all spiritual beings, angels and fallen angels alike, demons, will be reconciled. And it's so sure, they say, we can speak of it in the past tense, there's some truth in that, so, that they will be reconciled and we will all live happily ever after. So Rob Bell got it right. There is no hell. Problem is that this goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. Only those who believe will be reconciled to God, and the Scripture clearly teaches that there will be no demon reconciliation. Salvation is not for fallen angels. They go to the end of the, end of the story, read it. They are cast into a lake of fire where they will be forever. So what then does this reconciliation and peace mean? I need you to listen. I need to listen. There is coming a day when everyone and everything, even creation itself, which has been subjected to futility, everyone and everything, material and immaterial, physical and spiritual, will be reconciled to God Voluntarily or involuntarily, it does not matter. There is coming a day, Philippians chapter 2, when every knee will bow. Things in the heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. And confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Point is that everything and everyone will ultimately bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now listen, you can choose to do it now voluntarily and you will do it later in eternal heaven or you can refuse to do it now but you will do so later albeit involuntarily in eternal hell, but bow you will.
So sure is this act that he can speak of it in the past tense. All things have been reconciled. All things are summed up in Christ. It's often said this way. This reconciliation will either come through redemption or pacification. Pacification is a this is the definition, a forced cessation of conflict by the subjection or subjugation of those in rebellion. All will one day submit through redemption or subjection, and Christ will reign, having purchased peace by the blood of his cross. There will be not one atom of exception. One theologian writes it this way. The peace affected by the death of Christ may be freely accepted or it may be imposed. This reconciliation of the universe includes what, otherwise, what would otherwise be distinguished as pacification. The principalities and powers whose conquest is described in Colossians 2, we'll get to that, are certainly not depicted as gladly surrendering to divine grace like they get to hell and they go, oh, now I get it. but as being compelled to submit to a power which they are unable to resist. Everything in the universe has been subjected to Christ, even as sinful human beings, uh, wait, even as everything was created for Him. By His reconciling work, the spiritual beings in the heavens and sinful beings on earth have been decisively subdued to the will of God and ultimately they can but subserve His purpose whether they please or not. This is very serious. This is very serious. You can choose to do it now or you can choose to do it later, but you will submit. couple final thoughts, and with these I close. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the beginning. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Christ is supreme in everything. Christ is fully God, and Christ is the reconciler. Now, will you stop and think about that just for a moment? Christ is the reconciler. God is the creator. We are the created. He is the sovereign one, we are the rebellious ones. He is the offended party. We are the offenders. And so, typical to our way of thinking about reconciliation and typical of teaching in every other religion, we should bring gifts to our offended sovereign seeking a forgiveness and a restoration of the relationship. This is, in fact, what we are taught. If you are the wrong in a given situation, as the offender, you should go seek the forgiveness of the offended party. God did not do that. He did not wait for us, the rebellious, offending party, to seek Him out as the offended, sovereign, righteous ruler of the universe. Rather, he took the steps necessary to effect reconciliation. He sent his divine son to do the work of peace on his cross so that we, the offender, could be brought near. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. There was nothing you could do about your condition. And so God did it for you. 
He initiated your salvation. He brought you near the offender, the vile, rebellious offender that you were, and he reconciled you and he redeemed you. Reconciled to the one that we have infinitely offended. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've lost that word. Propitiation speaks of God's wrath being rightly poised against us. But, God, but Christ in his work on the cross averted God's righteous anger. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet rebellious sinners, offenders, Christ died for us. Most of us know that verse. Two verses later says this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Finally, last thing. I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago as I introduced the hymn. I want to remind you as I close the hymn. There are three very important prepositions in the first verse of this hymn that I think are intentionally repeated in the second verse. In verse 16, literally translated, we read, For in Him all things were created. All things have been created through Him and for Him. That's the first creation, folks. Verses 19 and 20. Literally translated, for all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things for himself. The point of this hymn is this. The purpose of creation was in him, through him, and for him. And the purpose of the new creation, the purpose of the church, your purpose in life, and eternity is in him and through him and for him. It is all about him. Stand prepared. Father, would you right now impress upon us our need to repent for looking to find meaning and purpose in anything or anyone outside of Jesus. Your intent purpose is that all things be summed up in Christ, that he come to have first place in everything. And we acknowledge that. Right now, take the rightful place your rightful place on the throne of our hearts and rule, reign sovereignly, majestically, awesomely, goodly. In Jesus' name.